นโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะทัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสังเฟิร์สเดย์ไอ้ไลค์ทูเทคอัพชินที่ทูอินทรดิวส์ทูทุกคนที่ไม่รู้จักเขาอาจารย์จายันโตทุกคนที่รู้จักเขาและรู้จักเขาจากเมื่อ8ปีเขาเปลี่ยนไปเป็นสีขาวในช่วงเวลาของเขาในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ในไทยแลนด์ก่อนหน้านี้เขาอยู่ We're totally delighted to have him back. I think for about three weeks, he'll be staying with us. Also, uh, what was that? Two weeks. Okay, I was giving the peace sign to you all. <laughs> Saying love. <laughs> He's an old hippie. <laughs> so this evening, I was thinking to contemplate. Together with you uh, on this question that arises uh, from time to time, probably for most of us, regarding how we can tell whether our practice is going the right direction or not. How do we gauge our practice? You know, we might like to think, for instance, that you, know, you embark on a path of spiritual inquiry and. Living a life of integrity and generosity and kindness and patience and all the rest of it, and think, well, uh, this should actually make me happy. And so you think we could hold up happiness as a barometer, as an indicator for for practice. But probably, as as most of us again have already realised that. Happiness comes from all sorts of things, and and it's not always a safe indicator. Um, even physically, this is the case. Ajahn Sundra, who has, has been staying with us, and she was saying how she's been receiving some homeopathic treatment from uh, a, a homeopath in London, and she took the uh, these little pills, and and the period after that, she's feeling absolutely wretched, just feeling terrible. So she rang up a homeopath, and predictably, the homeopath says, "Oh, you're having a healing crisis." <laughs> Well, actually, yeah, there's some truth in that. That uh, I'm not sure it's always the case. Some of these medications, sometimes she's just getting worse. But but how do we know? And and likewise with our practice, with our, our inner work, with our commitment to freedom, inner freedom. How do we gauge this? It's a way of of uh, contemplating it that we can trust in. Happiness is not always a good barometer. Sometimes we just have to go through difficulties before we learn what we need to learn. So, contemplating this, one of the things that comes to my mind as a as a good barometer is is the degree to which we are not uh, blaming. 
others for our suffering. I had this little insight in the shower the other day. Actually, it was quite a big insight. It was, as one would expect, I don't wear my glasses in the shower. And uh, it's a new shower because the old shower wasn't very working very well and had to be replaced. And so we got the plumbers and carpenters in and, and they banged around and did all sorts of things in there. It seemed to take for ages and they using all these toxic chemicals, which are you know, not very pleasant. And anyway, they finished their job and went away, and it wasn't a very good job, and I was very disappointed. Not only did the shower door not close, and, and these waterproof boards they put up cracked, and, and the grout was all over the place, and so on. But not only that, the most important thing was the shower was cold. You know, this new shower that, you know, I, mean, I can, I, most things in life, I, I can endure quite a lot, so long as I can have a good hot shower, you know, you know, I can take a fair beating. So long as I can just go and stand under the shower for a, a good while and all the splashing water, and all, I usually can recover. But when you don't have a nice hot shower, you've got this thing that's just vaguely warm. And so for the last two weeks, I've been trying to convince myself that, yes, I can be contented with this vaguely warm shower, and I shouldn't complain. And, but really, I was finding it very hard work well, then, blow me down. The other day, I didn't get into the shower, and it was even colder than it had been before. I thought, this is ridiculous, and I'm having all these unwholesome thoughts about the plumbers. And I don't know what it was that made me motivated to kind of twist the knob again. And then I <laughs> discovered I'd been twisting the wrong knob all this time. And that um, there's another dial in the center, which is marked with a red, you know, like red for hot. And that one, of course, I had turned to cold and wasn't aware of it. And... And for two weeks I had been suffering um, and trying very hard to not suffer, trying to be responsible and all the rest of it. And, and as soon as I turned up to the <laughs> most beautiful shower, <laughs> it's wonderful. I, I have two showers a day now. I just <laughs> can't get me out of there. <laughs> but I did, I did have a little insight there just to realize how, you know, I've still got my, my, my significant limitations because... I was really, it's a very simple thing, and the truth of the matter was I just didn't look closely. And it's not just that I don't wear my glasses in the shower. I mean, I could have, even without my glasses, figured it out if I'd been more, more patient and more attentive and less ready to blame these builders who had been there on the site. And so I got to thinking about, well, this is, you know, this is, uh, this is just shows up again another area of limitation in my practice there where one's not really willing to just take it on. What happens when we start to suffer? Basically what happens is when I don't get my way, but I don't, I don't get what I want, the reaction can be, if we're heedless, to look out there and blame. If we're not so heedless, we're more mindful, then we actually stay with the feeling of frustration, of not getting what I want, of being disappointed, of being frustrated, stay with that feeling. And my experience is in the occasions that I do do that and don't project it out and don't start blaming other people, if I'm really with it in a whole body-mind way, not just in a repressed, willful, trying to hold it in because good Buddhists don't blame people, and just really mindfully taking this feeling of frustration, limitation, disappointment, what happens is the mind starts to get very creative and in, in coming to terms with the, with the problem, yeah, with the frustration, with the suffering. 
And so I think this is one way of, of assessing our practice, is to, to get to look to see whether we're still blaming or not, or how much, or, or when we blame. Uh, so yesterday there was a group of people here, and after the meal they stayed behind to talk. We talked for about two hours, I think, uh, about practice, asked some very good questions. And uh, one, of the, one of the parents was, was asking, well, about two of them actually were asking about coming to terms with anger. How do you deal with the emotion of anger? And so I did my best to encourage the, uh, the exercise that I practice myself, which is you know, to make sure that as soon as we can, we come back to remembering that this is my suffering. This is, you know, whatever the trigger was, this is my suffering. And so I gave quite a long, um, long explanation of how I understood the, the way of coming to terms with that. But they came back and said, well, the source of my suffering is my colleagues at work. I said, well, can I say this again? <laughs> you know, well, I'll ask you a question. What is the source of your suffering? So I told you, my colleagues. And somebody else said, well, my suffering is my plants when they die, because he's a gardener. So really, are your plants really the cause of your suffering? Or your colleagues, are they really the cause of your suffering? I said, yes. I said, okay, well, let's look at this a bit more closely. And we had to go in. We actually went on for quite a long time. And until we did get around to the point of their coming to recognize that whatever the trigger might be in our life, whether it's, it's the limitations of the plumbers or your colleagues at work or, or a loss of health or, or, or a, a, an emotional upset, because you know, all of us get disappointed and frustrated and fed up and sick. All these things happen to all of us. How, how ready are we? How ready are we to come back to the actuality of the experience? I think that's a good question if we want to look at how our practice is going. How ready are we to come back to the actuality of our experience and investigate that? Because... If we are ready to do that, then, for instance, feeling angry or, or feeling confused, if we come back to the here and now experience of being frustrated and disappointed, it becomes quite workable. It's not workable when we go up into our heads and we start fantasizing. We start creating stories. So if it's, if it's anger, and the energy wells up. At the time, when something triggers us, anger is in full flight, it's probably not, uh, there's not much we can do. If, we got, if we're feeling really angry, we just contain ourselves, just try not to say anything or hit anybody. But then the thing to do is afterwards, we're alone, quiet, come back to our own space and reflect, to listen inwardly, to direct our attention inwardly. And maybe we can actually go through the sequence of things that triggered the anger. Okay, went to work, everything was fine, I did this, did this, and then that happened, and then up came the energy. That's what happened, okay. And here we are, sitting on our own, in our own room, and that trigger's not there anymore. It's us in our mind. But the energy is there. And we can become even more alert. And say, all oh, right, this is my reaction. This is my energy. This is my work. This is my practice. 
and in so doing to really cultivate the readiness to be with it when it happens. And if we're doing it in a, in a, uh, in a mindful, skillful, embodied way, then we can become really interested in it. And instead of anger or confusion or frustration or whatever it is being something that threatens me, it becomes something that's interesting. Instead of being something that we just want to get rid of, we reckon, actually, this is mine, this is my work, this is my job, this is my life. It's not just my responsibility, which can get a bit moralistic. This is my life. If I can't come to terms with this, well, then it's, it's part of my life that I'm not living. And so we get really interested in it. And so we can experiment. And so with, when there's a lot of energy there, whatever particular type of energy it is, you can, one can be quiet, be still, with a whole body awareness, investigate this passion. You've got this reflection going on that triggers the energy and then and then part of you doesn't want to know about it, wants to just the energy if you don't if you don't receive the energy in the body, then what happens it tends to come up to the heart, heats you up and confuse you and then goes into the head and then creates stories. And so you go, they said this, and they should, and they really shouldn't have done this. They really shouldn't have listened. Yes, you know, we all know what it's like. But we just come back to the body, come back to the actual sensation, just come back to where it started, which is a feeling of passion in our belly or in our heart, heat, energy. First foundation of mindfulness in the body. We come back to the body, feel that energy again, and then say, "But I don't want to feel it. I want to just all oh, right, interesting." Now that lack of readiness, that lack of willingness to be with the actuality. This is the investigation of Dhamma. This is Dhamma Vichaya. The Dhamma is not something in the Tripitaka book down there in the back in the cabinet. The Dhamma is the reality. The reality at that moment is I am angry. There's this passion, there's this pain. I'm suffering or I'm confused or I'm disappointed or I'm scared. Maybe fear is the thing that happens in be really unsettling. If we don't catch it in the body as a sensation, as energy, it goes up and into the head and it creates all these terrible scenarios and we can get terribly lost. However, if we're interested in practice, and we're cultivating Dhamma then we come back to the body. And we can experiment with it. These, these passionate upthrusts don't have to make us feel threatened. We can if we're really ready to work with them, then we can experiment with them. You go into the energy and feel it, and then you, know, you feel yourself getting absorbed again, getting pulled into it, getting possessed by it, getting taken over by it, and then you pull back again to come back to the whole body, whole body awareness. So you can even say it, you know, teach it, whole body awareness. That's what I was talking to this group yesterday. And, uh, people, we can hear about Buddhist teachings for a very long time, and we might even know and have read a lot about, for instance, the four foundations of mindfulness. But the very first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body, which is, is so essential. How to be in the body. When we're suffering, when we're not getting our own way, when we're disappointed, when we're confused, when we're disillusioned, how ready are we to, instead of go out and blaming the outer circumstances, blaming our history, Blaming the world, blaming ourselves, which is just another object of our imagination. 
let go of all the blaming and just come back. Come back to the raw experience and be with that and trust in that. And it does actually have to be an act of faith. It does have to be an act of trust because where I locate myself, and probably most of you locate yourself, is in your head. You know, this is me, the one who can cleverly think about absolutely everything and anything and nothing. And that's where I feel safe and secure. But it's not reliable. It's where I'm secure because I'm familiar there, but it's not reliable. Something like anger or confusion or despair, the real despair, it doesn't matter how much I think about it, it doesn't make any difference. But what does make a difference, what makes a huge difference is if I let go of all this thinking, let go of all this distraction, displacement, and come back to the raw condition and feel it in the body where it first arose and just be with it, just watch it. What emerges is a very creative kind of investigation which is not not driven. We're not being driven to try and get rid of the suffering anymore. And we're not blaming. So that's one one way of, of uh, I think, reflecting on, on, on how our practice is going. If we keep finding ourselves blaming all the time or blaming more and more, and this does happen, all of us have suffering in life. Nobody gets through life without suffering. If we're not living through it, then what tends to happen is uh, yeah, we're blaming somebody for it and, and it can accumulate. And so it can get worse as the years go by. And similar to this, similar to you know, noticing how how much we blame or how much we don't blame is also the the sense of of willingness. How willing are we to to bear with what's going on and how much are we still resisting? It doesn't take long in practice to get a little feeling for what's really called for, whether it's a meditation practice or in daily life practice, what's really called for is is a, a willing receptivity of what is in the moment. Now, we can spend a long time not doing that. We can, we can turn our meditation practice into another sophisticated exercise in distracting ourselves. and have ideas of the goals of spiritual life, of becoming enlightened, becoming concentrated, developing the, the jhanas. And it's true, the Buddha did say a lot of things about developing the jhanas and becoming enlightened. But if all our thinking is about that all the time, well then when we sit in meditation, instead of actually being with what's happening here and now, our mind is in another place, is just striving to become something. And we've got all this energy, we've got all this frustration, we've got all this suffering that's happening here and now, we don't ever get past it. And, and it can be a tremendous, uh, a tremendous realization, tremendous relief in our meditation when we realize that before we can mindfully strive towards a goal, we have to willingly, or we can willingly, accept ourselves as we are. What Mara says, Mara comes in and says, if you accept the way things are now, it means you're going to stuck like, be stuck like this forever. That's what the forces of delusion tell us. That if you stop you know, this, this 
longing to get somewhere else and striving to get somewhere else and just accept this, then you'll be stuck with it. Or like these people who were telling me yesterday that it's their colleagues at work that are, are the real source of their suffering. And, uh, and they said, if, I, if, we stop, if we stop giving our colleagues a hard time, then they'll just take advantage of us. That was their argument. You know, you've got to really keep the pressure up on them. You've got to, you know, you really got to go for them, otherwise they'll just take advantage of you. And if you just accept how it is, well, that's a very real fear. And so again, it's a, an act of faith that encourages us to let go of striving to be somewhere else and striving to have people be another way, including our colleagues, including the people we live with, and to simply accept. To dare, it's, it's kind of a daring thing to do. A dare to accept the way things are and to bear with the fear that by accepting the way things are, it's going, it's going to get worse or it's always going to be this way. Well, the reality is that, and this is something that we need to obviously find out for ourselves by way of experience and experiment, the reality is that when we, we do accept things the way things are, and not just let the fear take us over or the anxiety take us over, and in a whole body-mind awareness come to an appreciation, it's like this right now. It really, it's, this is confusion. This is despair. This is despair. This is what despair feels. And to teach ourselves. You know, we can do this. We can tell ourselves. This is despair. And like we were speaking a week or so ago about how contemplation works. Arjun Chao was pointing out that in the beginning we do use just the normal thinking faculty, normal course in a dialogue, you know, just talking to ourselves. This is despair. This is despair. Because the habits of distraction are so strong that we just go off and we start building stories around the feelings that we're having. Whereas if we just come back, come back, come back over and over again to this moment, to this feeling, this experience, this is desire. And then... The thinking stops, but our attention has been disciplined, has been trained to investigate. And so then the investigation deepens. It's an investigation with feeling, a silent investigation with feeling. And so, yes, we've still got a a feeling that we don't like, but somehow it's okay. I got an email this morning. I got two emails this morning just about this. One was from from, uh, Italy, some friends in Italy, a meditation group there, and they'd been discussing this whole area of practice of, of whether when you meditate you're striving to get somewhere or whether in meditation you first make the effort to learn to accept where you're at completely as a whole body-mind. And for many of them who've been meditating for a very long time, it was a, a, a profound shift in their appreciation of meditation just in one sitting where after the discussion of, of, of changing your attitude towards practice... Just in one sitting, they realize a tremendous shift. And they, just to let go of always struggling to be somewhere else, struggling to change things, mm. letting go of the struggle, in fact, daring to let go of the struggle and to simply be with it in this moment. Mm. What can happen when we let go of the struggle and we're willing to be with it in the moment, what can happen is sometimes there's a backlog of old 
stuff like old fear or old anger or can come up and so we do have to be really well established in our body awareness otherwise the stuff can take us over but if we're daring enough to bear with it well then we can eventually come to a whole body mind awareness it's like this and then our investigation deepens and our appreciation of suffering changes and the other email I got this morning was from a young man who's been through a terrible ordeal dealing with very difficult family things and, and uh, relationship matters and, and educational things. And, but what he's been working on recently is, again, just looking at the attitude that he has towards the suffering. Uh, in his case, a great deal of justification for, or understandable if he was into blaming uh, the circumstances of his life. But refusing to do that, just keeping coming back, keeping coming back over and over again to this then in a kind of miraculous way, actually, in a wonderful way, there's a shift in capacity. That's, I think, a good word, a good way of talking about it. A shift in capacity for being with the suffering. And instead of fighting it, and instead of judging it, instead of saying it's all wrong, instead of saying it shouldn't be this way, and then falling prey to blaming outside or blaming ourselves, instead of any of that, there's just... A, a willing receptivity. And so again, I think that's a very good barometer or gauge for practice, the degree to which we can actually notice this and feel this in ourselves. In small areas, but sometimes also in very big areas. Sometimes really, really challenging, threatening experiences can come to us. And if our default is still to fighting, still resisting, well, it shows where we've got a limitation. But if there's an inclination towards quietly receiving the suffering and, and saying, as we've said many times before, welcome, welcome, a willing receptivity, and a, a shift, a complete shift in our appreciation of suffering. L- suffering is not wrong. It's a bit like our mistakes, when we make mistakes, when we do things that are not quite right. We get angry or we get deceitful or we get greedy. We say, oh yeah, that was a mistake. And then we suffer. So what do we do with that suffering? Is there a willing receptivity to it? Because if there is, if there's a willing receptivity to it, then the suffering teaches, the very very suffering teaches us what we need to learn. The only reason we keep making the same mistakes over and over again is because we haven't got the, the message. And so this is, a, I think, a helpful thing in practice to, to see where we are still fighting, suffering, and judging and saying it's wrong, and to realize we have complete authority, actually. We have complete authority whether we say it's wrong or not. Okay, we made a mistake, that's obvious. We're suffering, that's obvious. But do we have to say it's wrong? Do, no, it's not, that's not an obligation to say it's wrong. The suffering is just so. And from another perspective, actually, the suffering is perfectly appropriate. And the suffering is the message. The suffering is the message. Or as Fritz Perls, that rather grubby guest old therapist, once said, frustration is the therapy. Yeah. Well, actually, Ajahn Chah said the same thing. He wasn't a grubby in the slightest, but he, he used to say the same thing. You know, people would come to him and and ask him, what is your meditation technique, Ajahn Chah? 
Do you teach vipassana? Do you teach samatha? Do you teach satipatthana? What is your meditation technique? And he said, my technique is frustration. Toraman. Frustration. I mean, it can, the word can be translated as torture, but that's, a, that's, that's just a bit, bit much, really. <laughs> he wasn't into torture. But he was into frustration, big time. Yeah, big time. If he, if he saw you taking any fixed position, then he would do a little something to trip you up in the kindest possible way, with a smile. <laughs> it's made the, the medicine easier to take. A little bit of sugar, you know, helps the medicine go down. It was Mary Poppins, wasn't it? <laughs> okay. So anyway, getting back to the theme of <laughs> how do we gauge our practice. So this willingness to be with suffering, until we discover this, we, see, we can measure the capacity we have for receptivity. You know, what, what really happens when I don't get my own way and I feel like I'm about to explode? What's really happening there? I've reached my, my full capacity. The energy, the passion, which is life, has filled up. And because I take myself too seriously still, I impose these limitations on awareness. And here I am actually feeling like I'm going to explode. I can't take it anymore. And so then I feel threatened and disintegration or something terrible is going to take me over, whatever, whatever these hallucinations we can start having. So then we act out. If we're a little extroverted, we thump somebody or do something, kick a step. But that's what happens when the energy fills up. I can't stand it anymore. Or if you're not extroverted, if you're an introverted type, well then you know, the energy goes up into the head and you start with these crazy stories go around. But what's the real problem? The problem's not with the passion. That's just life. The problem, the limitation, the difficulty is the way we hold it. The limitations that we impose on awareness. The limited capacity, that's the problem, that's the only problem. The Buddha didn't have any problem. It wasn't because he didn't feel anything. It's just he didn't have any limitations, so his capacity for feeling was infinite. The Buddha could feel anything without becoming anything. We can feel a certain amount and we can tolerate it, but then it gets to a point where I just can't take this anymore. And what's the problem? The problem at that point is where we are establishing limitations through habits of clinging and taking ourselves too seriously, and then it feels like I'm going to explode. Well, if at that point we can remember this and come back to the body, take a deep breath, like make a physical gesture of creating more space to accommodate all this life that is flowing through us, and then release the holding. Release the holding. Physically release the holding. And let the energy flow. Let the passion flow through us. Let it flow through us. And then we discover increased capacity. Talking about increased capacity, this is something that Ajahn Chah used to use, used to speak about as a, as a barometer for practice. He, he would say that, that that if you want to see how your practice is developing, look at your capacity to tolerate uncertainty. So if our practice means that we're going in the direction of being able to tolerate less uncertainty, we've got to feel more sure all the time. Well, that shows us that the practice is not going in the right direction. I'm a control freak. Well, no, that's not completely true. I'm a, I'm a recovering control freak. 
This is Control Freaks Anonymous meeting we're having here because <laughs> really that's what the ego is. I mean, the ego, the ego gets around under the delusion that it can control life. Well, to some degree, the ego can control. It can, and that's what its function is. That's the appropriate function for the ego. It can moderate experience so we don't overdo it and it's got its place. However, when we believe in it too seriously and we hold it too tightly, we become possessed by it, it becomes the self inflated, then it ceases to serve its appropriate function. And to that degree, the, the, the ego personality gets around feeling like it can and should and is able to control everything and desperately tries to control everything, control the health, control the environment, control relationships, and, and that's you know, very, very unpleasant to be around such a person. But I'm sure all of us have seen the limitations of that and, and are in the process of recovering. One of the things that we notice as we let go more and more of our compulsive controlling, not mindful attention, but compulsive controlling, as we let go more and more, well, we do discover this increased capacity for not having to know what's going on. And this is very important in our daily life, but extremely important in our, in our inner life, in our spiritual life, in our meditation. Because we really don't know where we're going. And it is an act of faith. And if we're aware of this as a as a useful gauge for practice, then when we come up against the habitual tendency to want to control, to want to know, when we come up against a real dilemma, a real, a real gritty problem, should I do this or should I do that? And there can be some real gritty problems come to us in this life. Instead of defaulting to the habit of feeling like we should know, I'm only as good as I can say, yes, sir, I know. That's what we're taught in school. Yes, sir, I know. I mean, nobody taught us to just say, I really don't know. I really, really don't know. Isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that absolutely incredible, sir? <laughs> can you celebrate the state of mysterious wonder that I'm in right now? The teachers didn't give us that kind of induction. Spiritual teachers, that's kind of their job, really. Uh, but not many of us had many of those people around us. However, if in our meditation we can appreciate this, you know, we get to the point of feeling frustrated and you know, I just don't know if I can handle this anymore. So, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. And so, to be mindful, to cultivate a mindfulness around the capacity to be with uncertainty is also, I think, a useful uh, way of gauging our practice. So I think that's probably enough for this evening. Anyway, I hope these uh, hints and suggestions may be of some support for your own contemplation, and thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.